five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. podcast on the internet. So here I am in the Temple of Mercury, and let's bring in our next guest, the one and only Mr. Howard McCoskey. If I had an applause thing, I'd play it right now. I would have played it for Joan, too. But uh, we're bringing Howie. And, and Howie, excuse me, has, just, has agreed to come on here at a fairly short notice. I really appreciate that. And I always enjoy hey, talking to you. You're welcome. Him. There you are. What's going on, my friend? Well, I've got some stuff to talk to you about once we start. You picked quite the day to talk to me. Really? Yeah. Okay. I can't wait to get into it. Uh, before... have, I, have I got a minute to go to the bathroom? Or Yeah, yeah. Go to the bathroom, and then I'll, I'll, I'll do the intro. And I'll, t- I'll tell people who okay. you are. Okay? Yeah, it's perfect that you don't know what I'm going to talk about. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, so Howie has the mystery topic, and I think we were going to also try to get into uh, the topic that I sent to him, but if you don't know who Howie is, he's an author and a researcher and a philosopher, and I really think one of the, I'm just going to say it right now, he's, he, he goes by Howdy, but I call him Howie. He, he is, I think, one of the great thinkers of our time. I'm, I'm going to come right out and say that because I believe it to be true. I mean, I've had a number of conversations with him and I've always been more than uh, pleased by the level and the depth of his, his observations. So let's just take a look at some of his books here. Uh, we have Exposing the Expositions, 1851-1915, revised last year, The Power of Then, Revealing Egypt's Lost Wisdom, Revise and Update It, Falling for Truth, Spiritual Death and Awakening, uh, and then another version of The Power of Then. So we hit the trifecta here with Mr. McCoskey, and it looks like he's taking care of business. So let's bring him, bring him back in. All right, before you start, I, I punched in your name on Google, not because I think I was trying to find your website or something. It wasn't anything nefarious. Yeah. And all these stats from Canadian hockey popped up. Is that you? No. See, I didn't know that about you. That's interesting. How long did you play hockey for? Uh, yeah, well, I started when I was a young kid, and um, I played. I finished my university at Wilfrid Laurier. We, we won a couple of um, Ontario championships. I finished there in 93. Um, played a couple of years overseas and I pretty much, I, I packed it in young. I was 27 when I stopped, like stopped playing completely, like with friends, anybody. Yep. Uh, coached for a long time. So I was actually a, a professional coach for a while. 
did you find all the stand-up comedy stuff? I guess you knew I was a comedian. Uh, no, that that has not. No, I just focused on the hockey, the hockey piece. Well, we could get into the stand-up stuff if you want to, but um, probably, but I just, I, you probably didn't know. That's something people don't know about me. They see that, this, I, that's I don't know. Me. Yeah, I don't. I don't know that about you. But the hockey stuff I found interesting because I, I'm a big sports guy. What what what's what, uh, position did you play? Uh, I was mostly a, I was a center most of my career. I became a left winger late in my life. I, I my biggest problem was I couldn't skate fast enough. That's a big deal. Uh, very good hands. Yeah, very strong around the net. But once I go, once I hit 16 years old, and I had just I had just finished time with Team Canada, and I was going for my first uh, my first year in the OHL. And I got a look at the guys who were had been drafted and were getting ready to go to the NHL training camps. And I realized I'm in big trouble compared to these guys. These guys can fly. It's a and whole I realized yeah, my, wow. my career's my career's going downhill. Yeah. People, people who are involved in sports, and we all we're all involved. Well, not all of us, but a lot of us are involved in sports up to a certain level. And then when you get to a place where you're highly at a highly competitive level. Then there's that next tier of, of dudes who are just off the charts, physical freaks, and understand how to play the game. And people don't understand the gap between people who are really, really good. Like, you were probably really good. And then the whole next tier, which is the guys that are playing, like, high-level IHL and NHL stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was – and it was – Actually, for me, and for talking about it, it was uh, I was uh, just before I went to my OHL camp. All the guys I grew up in Ottawa, so all the guys who are NHL players and, and junior players, we all would meet and have scrimmages together to get ready for the season. My first scrimmage, I went on the ice. I was on a line with Steve Eiserman, who was oh, like, boy. maybe the number three player in the NHL at the time. Talk, he's big so and I was fast. on yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was on one side of the ice. He's on the complete opposite side on the other blue line. I'm tired. I just want to, you know, I'm thinking I'm going to change. He's going to dump the puck in. Where all of a sudden, through five guys, the puck is on my stick. Like it's on my stick. I don't know how he did it. I just, it, I, I wasn't prepared. It just bounced off my stick and, you know, went away. And I, oh, I sat down on the bench and he came on, came on, sat beside me and said, when you play with me, kids, you better be ready all the fucking time. <laughs> and I, yes, sir. And for the rest of that scrimmage, all I had to do was think if I can get it, if I can get an open space, he's going to get me the puck. I think I scored four goals, not because I was so great, but because I was just smart enough to think, just be somewhere around the net open. Iserman will get me the puck. And he did every single time. And, and that's, again, that's when I realized this is another level from wherever I thought I was. And I better, I better readjust my hockey life because my, my uh, dreams of being an NHL player are, are not going to go now. And I had to, like I say, I focused more on, just being a decent university player and having a good time and getting an education, which turned out to be really semi-useless, but I got it anyway. And, <laughs> right. and here I am. But it, but it added to the, uh, to the overall profile of who you are, whatever you used or didn't use yeah. right, from that experience. All right. Yeah. What do you want to talk about? Let's get to the hot topic. Okay. Cause I know Robert sent me, cause we, I, I'm like, I'm like the soon I'm the guest that's just sort of filling in today. And, Fill, filling uh, in like so a you, you're not a mercury fill-in though you're not mercury. yeah and, and he sent me he sent me a couple of ideas of what he want to talk about and we, we can get to that this could be interesting okay but today this morning i bumped into a document 
that document is from it was it came out in November of 2021, but it's related to a exercise that happened in March of 2021 by the thermonuclear or no the nuclear threat institute combined with a whole lot of other things equivalent to an event 201 that happened in 2019 this one was for a monkeypox pandemic mm. and it's a complete detailed description of the event and what's even more bizarre there's because the, of course it's a fictional event they put it in a fictional country but the date that it began on uh, in their fictional test was may 2022 here we are Shock and here we are and literally i've just downloaded the document and i'm, I'm going to read it tonight because it's like it, it's gonna it, i'm sure it's gonna lay out what we're gonna see for the next eight months well, that that is a hot topic. Where did where did you find it? Were you just like rummaging around online, or how did how did how did you get to it? I bumped I bumped into it on Vigilant Citizen actually, in one of their forums, someone posted it. I just did a video on it on my channel today. Mm-hmm. So if if someone's interested, you know, you can just go over there. I, I called the video another exercise. I've got the link, and it goes right to this thirty six page document of. Um, of yeah, of, of an, uh, an exercise, not just for, you know, because there's going to be a smallpox epidemic uh, pand- uh, exercise at the G7 next month. Mm. So we've got that also already already scheduled, but they did one for the exact thing. And they gave all the details of what's, what's expected in order to, to, you know, handle this. The end result of it, I think, was they were claiming... 3 billion people affected, infected worldwide and 270 million dead. That was their prediction. And of course, the countries that were locked down the strongest, they would have had the, the easiest way through it. And, and, and there was a fictional country called Arnica. And interesting name, right? And Arnica didn't do any of those things. and They were hit terribly hard. Now, of course, you and I both know Arnica is a very important herbal medicine and a very important not only herb for healing the body when you have bruises and, and, and uh, damage, it's also a herb, as I understand it, that if you can't find the root cause of an illness, Arnica will help you go back to find way in your past where that started. So I also think it's strange they've chosen that name of the country that didn't know what it was doing. Uh, but I'm just giving an overview because I haven't read the whole thing yet. I've just read right. pieces of it. And it was enough to tell me we're, we're moving into dangerous territory now. Yeah, because the I've been talking about this this week, and I started off with going into the whole uh, Buffalo shooting event. Have you heard about that? Oh, yeah. Yep. So I went down a lot of different rabbit holes with the Buffalo shooting event, and I wanted yeah. to show you – let me see if I can uh, just dial this up really quickly. Sure. Uh, let's see if we can do this. Um, because I, I was on with uh, Giuseppe yesterday. And this image uh, popped into my field last year, and I and I and I, I was kind of commenting on it on Twitter when it when it happened, and it's a very very bizarre image that kind of encapsulates the inner phase or the inner zone of, of where we are, because I think the Buffalo thing has a lot of really bizarre ramifications. And then yesterday I started to talk about the monkey stuff. And so here you have, okay. on wall, here you have on wall street, 
you have the venerable golden calf representing the bull mm-hmm. market and then you have a bronze gorilla on the other side of it almost like a it's not quite exact it's almost like an inconjunct with hmm. astrology and then down yeah. here you can see that there people were kind of playing with this thing and you know an offering of bananas at the uh, at the base of the the golden calf so i thought that this was a very very interesting uh series of like symbols and if you mm. put them together from that point in october to now that's the interface of where we are now the whole buffalo thing and the onset of this other like entity symbol phase that's being introduced into the scene yeah and and of course the buffalo situation is strange of course because of all the weird things that happened during the buffalo um world exposition right the buffalo exposition was well like we the talked strangest about that. of them all that's yeah, right we've got the, you got the assassination of a president you've got like the electrocution of an elephant you've got the uh, forcing the indians to kill any dogs you've got it was such a weird exposition like not that the other ones weren't weird but it was like on the top weird so again that this happened in buffalo that was the thing that kind of you know buffalo it's strange things happen in that are uh, set to happen in that city so what there the is message? a lot of strange stuff that happens in buffalo and this gets back into uh like the buffalo shaman from january 6th Right. Remember that guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Buffalo Shaman from January 6th, which which brings up echoes of whoever this character is or was in the manifesto. Mm -hmm. And and then so one of the things that I did, and we'll we'll get back to this monkey thing because it's really important. But one of the things that I did is I was started to track the Buffalo Bill Roadshow and the Buffalo Bill Roadshow being this thing that creates the mythology of the Wild West. Right. And selling it, right. Going from city to city and not only city to city from continent to continent, because they went over to Europe, I think on a couple of occasions, Buffalo Bill, if I'm not mistaken, was knighted by the, by the, by the queen. He was, so Buffalo Bill is a 32nd degree Mason. He's also a member of the Knights Templar. So he's got all these weird connections. I've been to his grave in Colorado. You can see clearly the Masonic symbol on his grave. They were like honoring him. And so they create this fictionalized account of mm-hmm. what the what the West was, right? And and then that goes really up all the way to the beginning of movies. Like you'll see some silent films of the the Buffalo the Buffalo Bill Roadshow. You'll see some, and and yeah. and and then we get into the production of silent movies right after that. And then the first person who is the the kind of the wild west star silent movies is tom mix yeah and tom mix's house sits right in the laurel canyon right in the laurel canyon and then you go back and you look at tom mix he's born on january 6th right so this whole like high strange with buffalo and the death of mckinley is really weird it's really really weird happening at the beginning of the century right okay we're gonna have we're gonna kill the president who was a populist who was really into making sure that, you know, the tariffs were going to be equal begins to change his tune a little bit so that American manufacturers can sell their stuff abroad. And he gets, he gets off by this guy, Chagloche, who is supposedly this anarchist that was radicalized by Emma Goldman weird trial, supposedly after this eight hour trial where his lawyers do nothing, 
they, they supposedly electrocute him, which is a big deal back then, right? We don't right. we don't understand like now electrocution, but in 1901, you get the elephant, and then you got this guy who kills supposedly McKinley. Then they yeah. go, okay, we're gonna pour muriatic acid on his body. Yeah. <laughs> Why? Why? Yeah. And isn't it is McKinley in that temple of music? Didn't they turn that into his tomb? Uh, no, what, what I had, what I had found was um, that they, what happened is uh, I, I was, I bumped into some guys who were doing, uh, they were going through abandoned buildings uh, on YouTube. There was, and one, they were in a, an old tuberculosis hospital. Uh, and I can't remember the name, just outside uh, Buffalo somewhere. I would have Pittsfield, maybe I'd have to look it up. And um, they were showing this walking through it. And of course it's interesting and big. And then they come to this beautiful dome structure in one of the areas i'm like why would a tuberculosis slash insane asylum have a beautiful dome like this so i looked into it and i found it's the dome that was in the temple of music where mckinley was shot it had been saved by the buffalo mayor and it was the mayor of buffalo who donated the dome when they were building this new uh insane asylum so it's like he kept it as like a souvenir right it was like a it was like a mat, yeah, a magical symbol that was being kept once because the temple of music was torn down, like everything else at the exposition. But the dome, the actual glass part of the dome was kept, and it's still intact. If if anybody goes to this abandoned place, I, I had it in my book, wherever it is, you can still see the dome is still there. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's, everything is just just so strange as you look into that exposition. Well, I, I you yes. know what once I opened the the basement door on buffalo it's like everything began to strangely open up like strange like all these we all these weird like synchromistic kinds of tells just started like popping right and left right like of course one of the one of the key figures from the city of buffalo is oj simpson who, who played who played running back for the buffalo bills for a number of years and yeah. and O.J. Simpson is probably actually more known now for the the murder of you know yeah Ron Goldman right Ron Goldman and Emma right Ron and Emma yeah so there we have the two Goldmans that are connected to Buffalo and then yesterday I realized that it is Nicole Brown Simpson's birthday. So I actually did a little bit of a show on this. She's a Taurus. We're in the season of the bull. Literally, I mean, Taurus, the astrological sign. I'm like, oh, man, this thing is just really opening up in a very weird way. And even the current mayor of Buffalo, his last name is Brown, like Nicole Brown Simpson. So mm -hmm. once you go down the Buffalo shoot, man, things just get really wild. And then I transitioned. We can get into the monkey stuff now because... I started to transition. Yeah, no, whatever. I started to transition to the whole monkey thing. And it was like, okay, let's get into the monkey stuff. So the first thing I did yesterday was I put up a behind me, I had an image from the Planet of the Apes, the movie The Planet of the Apes, and which is written yeah. by a guy by the name of Pierre Boulet. And Pierre Boulet had written a number of other books, Bridge on the River Kwai. And at the beginning of the show, I played this song by Ian Brown. And the, so it's like, okay, here's Ian Brown. Nicole Brown, the mayor Brown of Buffalo, what's going on here? And Ian Brown does a song called When Dolphins Were Monkeys. 
So then I looked hmm. at the birth date of Pierre Boulet and Ian Brown. They're born on the same day. Okay, this is getting kind of weird now. And then you look into the definition of Boulet and it connects him with the Boulet Society, which is the, the sort of the, the black elite and not just any black elite. Usually they're mixed. They're like mixed race black elite. They're very light skinned. And W.E.D. Dubois, Du Bois, is one of the founding members of Boulay. And of course, the NAACP drafts him. So this whole thing just starts to open up and get really weird. And then what happens in Buffalo, it's all about race, the replacement society. And by the way, last thing here about Buffalo is there were supposedly 10 people that died. Whoever this person is, Peyton Gedron, because there were... At the beginning, they actually were attributing the shootings to somebody else, somebody by the name of Fred Mortensen, which is really bizarre. So what happens to Fred Mortensen and Peyton Gedron? I don't know. But Peyton Gedron has been charged with one murder, one homicide, but yet supposedly 10 people died. Why is this? Right? So the whole thing just gets weirder and weirder and weirder. And now, now here comes... Here comes the monkey, the monkey pox. And remember when the truck in Pennsylvania, who supposedly had all those monkeys that mm-hmm. were connected to the coronavirus stuff, crashes and the monkeys yeah. get out and start running yeah. around Pennsylvania. Like, we're living in a movie, Howdy, a total movie. I know. Yeah, I know. And um, it's indicating to me that um, we're, we're, the game is really moving to another level now. And um, a big part of it for me is saying to people, it's, it's time to get really, really serious with what it is you, you want to be doing and what you, what you want to be doing with your, your life. I think a lot of people, and, and you and I probably included, even over the last two years, we were still involved in a lot of distraction stuff. We still, we watched things for a little bit of entertainment. We, you know, we spent, <laughs> we didn't spend our time necessarily well. We've maybe got, Within eight, I think it was Vernon Coleman. He he had said something in a, in a video recently where he said he thinks we've got like eight months to turn this around. If by eight months it all hasn't been turned around, like worldwide, we may not be able to do it. That it will will be in too deep to get out, you know, with how how things will be. And may, maybe maybe it's ten months, maybe, but I, I don't think it's that much longer than that—a year maximum. We've got a time frame that that. We have to either as a group, if it's going to be outward, it all has to be changed and turned over, or we have to, no matter, this is the the suggestion I'm making is we have to get to the point where it doesn't really matter what's going to happen externally because it's going to get crazy. We have to really focus our attention inward and we have to do all the work we've been, we've been uh, distracting from all this time and to really go in and say, I'm going to live like the next eight to 10 months as best as I've ever done with, with a rooted sense of, of commitment, a rooted sense of practice, a rooted sense of uh, who I want to be, because you also want to, you're almost inventing who you want to be now. And then wherever we are in 10 months, no matter what, good or bad, you can look in the mirror and say, I'm happy with how I live that. I live that really, really well. And I think we have to take that as, really take that on now, because I think it's, I think it's going five notches ahead and not many, a lot of people are still in denial. They're not seeing how fast this is going yet. And I'm just letting people know, then, then get your inner practice set up and start doing it. Yeah. I, I talked about this. I think it was this last week. And I was talking about this idea of like double tracking, like you have to live your life in a certain way, but you also have to be ready to 
not live your life in a certain way. And what I mean by that is like transitioning out of the body and, you know, not being in this world anymore, you know, and, and, and if that happened tomorrow or next week or next month or next year, would you be prepared to do that? Would you be able to understand what that would be like for you? And could you be at peace with how you've lived your life? And I've been talking about this for a few years now, but it feels like the event horizon is just getting closer. So we, I feel like we have to be able to do both of these things so that if we do switch tracks at some point in time, we're, we're still living the same life to the same degree that we've been living it. And there, yeah. there, aren't, there aren't many manuals to get people prepared for this. You, know, you have the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Egyptian Book of the Dead, and maybe some accounts of people who've had near-death experiences. But I think this is some, these are things that we need to think about and embody to the best of our ability. Yeah, and I, I, one of the simple things, because uh, I was talking with Campbell today on our normal, our two-week spiral up talk that we do every every couple of weeks, and, and a suggestion came theme there was, I think everybody should also right now, if you don't have two or three things that you are going to hold on to on a daily basis, it's going to be like, these things define who I am, or these things are important to me, and I'm going to do them every single day, no matter what, as like a, I call it like being, a, having a piece of bamboo with you, this piece that's going to be your grounded center, that's going to indicate this is me. I think that's one of the things that's also really valuable, something that we can, we can hold on to internally to kind of say, this is me, this is important to me. And at the same time, then really go out and connect with others. Really connect with other people now, not just superficially, like really try to find people you can talk to and start having real conversations with them. Really, really get, really open the depths of yourself because uh, that's going to help both of you. So, Related to that, how's that going for you in Finland? Because we talked a little bit about this the last time you were on the show and trying to, you know, blend with a culture which generally is a bit more reserved, a little more standoffish. Are you starting to make some of those connections, especially as the weather changes? Uh, it's Norway, actually. Nor Finland, sorry, my bad. Norway. Yeah. Norway. Okay. Yeah, no, no problem. But um I mean, now we've, we've moved to a farm that's even a little bit more remote than where we were. And uh, we're, so we're getting along very well with the owner of the farm who's here. And uh, like, you know, it's a lot of work now putting together the raised beds and, and everything else that has to go on. Generally, we're not out that often in the community anymore. So uh, no, in a sense, I'm not really making many connections here directly as, as I might like. The good news is, is things are still going very, very well through this medium. Right. So there's still lots that I'm able to uh, talk with and discuss and share things and make suggestions to. And um, so that's kind of, that's kind of bridging that gap. Uh, there's a couple of people that I do know. They're, they're just in, in different parts of the country. And even though Norway is not a big country population wise, it is rather large uh, from a standpoint of area. And um, they happen to be in places I don't get to very often and they don't get to where I am. So we hardly get to see in person, but that's okay because it still makes the message. There's people you can find that don't live where you are that also can't find somebody. So just find them, connect with them through a comment section, through a forum, whatever. And then, hey, can we just meet up on Skype for half an hour and have a little chat? And just, just so you feel that you can share your 
your experience and your challenges and your, your, your knowledge with somebody else who's not going to think you're crazy and is just going to go, yeah, I understand. And here's my stuff. And you feel you lose that feeling, even though it's not a true connection across the table, you still get some feeling of you're not alone. I think that's important. I think it's very important. And that's one of the things about uh, the small little group or community that comes in and, and watches these streams. Uh, they've been really great at connecting with each other online, offline. It's been, it's been kind of, it's been a beautiful thing to watch uh, and have and see these relationships being formed, you know, whereas in the past, a lot of these connections might not ever have happened because of this. And I'm sure you've experienced that through your own world and people that watch and take part in your work as well. It's, it's very, uh, it's very empowering and it's very uplifting in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's been, you know, I have great, I have gratitude for what's, what's happened. I mean, of course, we all get the trolls and people who try to attack us and whatnot, of course. But from where, where I started this two years ago, where I never even thought I would do something like this, I was just, I was just writing the books and um, this has been a, a wonderful surprise. And um, knowing that some people have actually been, I don't want to say helped because I don't want to elevate what I've done beyond, but just that some people have had some new things to think about, new ways to go, and and have had a place where uh, a few suggestions could be made to them. That makes me feel really good that that uh, I made good use of my last couple of years, and I just want to keep that going. And that's going to lead in maybe to what you wanted to talk about earlier, which was, for example, I, I also said today, because again, talking about really wanting to take value in our time now. So for example, the study of history, just to keep studying the past, just to keep going in and, and, and rehashing what's there is not really the best use of our time per se. We know there's been resets in the past. We know these things have gone through. There's no reset that we found in history that was overturned and stopped. So I think the best use for those who want to keep studying into the history in the past, I think we should look for when were these resets previously in the past and not what happened or how they occurred. Who were the ones that made it through? Because there were humans that survived them and made it through past it on, on their own, through their own knowledge and means and whatever. Who were they? What did they know? What did they do? Uh, was it frequency? Was it where they lived? Was it how they lived? I think that should be the, if, if you're looking for something to study, Right now, man, that's the greatest gift we could get is information on who, who actually made it through the last reset smoothly and what can we learn from them? So have you, have you dove into this area? Well, a little, I mean, because again, the first thing is trying to exactly figure out when the last reset was. I'm assuming it's sometime in the 1800s. Yeah. Um, so who kind of, when you start thinking about it, who or what may have made it through the 1800s, it would have to have been some, some native uh, tribes in different parts of the world, because there are some that didn't, as opposed to say the native Indians in North America, which pretty much got taken over, controlled, uh, decimated, moved under reservations, had their culture taken away. There were a few that in the Amazon or in Africa, that kind of seemed like they just, they, they, they smoothed it out. They kind of got ignored, right? These, these to talk about these tribes that were still in the 1950s and had never met white people or something. It's like, there's a great example. Like, how can we study them and figure out what they did? How did they just avoid the whole thing? It, it, that just, that right away, it makes me curious. 
it seems to me like the Seminole Indians might have some interesting takes mm. on this because they were pretty nice. isolated living in the swamps of Florida. And I, the stories that I've heard where uh, the Spaniards or whoever else went into the swamps of Florida basically got their asses kicked because they weren't, right. prepared, they weren't prepared to deal with the elements and the knowledge of these people. I think the Seminole were very interesting people. So there might be a there there. The, there's a really there's a really interesting movie. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Uh, apparently, there's, it's based on a book, which I've never read, but I've seen the movie. And the movie is called Cabeza de Vaca. Have you ever seen this movie? No. Okay. So I'm going to throw this out to you and people that are that are watching this stream. Yep. Cabeza de Vaca is the story of a Spaniard who is a treasurer. This is, again, we're, gonna, we're, we're led to believe it's a true story. And he, he writes this book about essentially having the, his party, party. That gets slaughtered, right? So, so they land, they get slaughtered, and this all takes place somewhere down in uh, the tip of Florida or the Caribbean. And then he's left to his own devices to somehow survive. And he moves through all these indigenous environments to do that. And eventually he winds up, I don't want to, uh, you know, spoil the end of the movie because it's an actually a really good movie. He winds up reconnecting with the Spaniards in Mexico. So he goes through and makes this entire trek through the South and the Southwest. And there's a part of the journey where he is actually initiated into shamanism and has some very profound experiences around becoming a healer. And again, this is just popping into my head, right? So here's a guy, mm. he, he may or may not be surviving the reset, but he does survive something that is cataclysmic to his world. And mm. he finds himself in an alien and hostile environment. And right. he not only does he come through it, but he comes through it in a very different kind of way. So when he, he reconnects with his culture, his relationship is very, very different. It's worth checking out. Cabeza de Vaca is the name of the movie. And there's a, it's based on a book that the guy wrote. Okay. Well, I, I mean, because we've got, it's a very interesting challenge. We've got this idea of the, the knowledge of the shaman. And I mean, as you know, I spent time with several native Indian medicine men back 20 years ago in Canada. And of course, I wished, I wished I, the things I'd been studying in the last few years about the past and the 1800s, I mean, I wished I was, had that there when I was sitting in, in the sweat lodge with them and been able to ask questions about what really happened during this time period, you know, cities and, and were you really always on the plains? Were you, I mean, I wished, but anyway, the, the challenge, of course, is always this, on one sense, here's this great wisdom and power and knowledge um, that they have and had and in some cases still have, but yet it, it even that wasn't enough to keep, let's say, keep their way of life. I mean, it, it, some, the tribe or the knowledge somehow made it through and under very difficult circumstances. Some of the knowledge made it through the, the destruction of, of, of the Indian peoples, but it, it didn't it didn't save their way of life. It didn't save their their homeland, you might say. So we're, we're, it's also this really chat because it's like it's easy to say I should turn. We should all turn to being shaman, but is that totally the answer here? 
is the answer still trying to fix Plato's cave? Is the answer staying on the cave? Or maybe it's finally time to say, what's outside the cave? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finally let the cave be the cave. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go on the scary journey that uh, 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 everyone has tried to stop me in doing. And that is what happens when I leave Plato's cave and leave the simulation behind? Who or what is going to make that journey? And what that what is that going to be? So maybe for those of us who are truly serious about all this, this is our time. This is going to be our time to make the journey we've been waiting to make our maybe our whole existence. That I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And and I feel like I can speak for myself and and you know, I'm sure you're you know, in the same zip code here is that I, you know, a lot of us have felt like we're here for a purpose and for a reason. And, and our existence has been sort of, you know, covering away the dirt, right? Removing the dirt, removing the things that um, obscure whatever that thing is. And it feels like from a collective standpoint, we're kind of coming into this, you know, focal point on the event horizon. And that maybe this mm-hmm. is this is why we're all here, right now, and answering perhaps some of those questions, or at least addressing them, you know, um, in terms of the purpose level. Let me let me ask you a question here. Um, sure. So, let's go back to maybe 1840, and th- this thing that might be happening around that time, eight, between 1840 to 1855, were people aware? of prior resets? This is the question that that mm-hmm. I have. Were they aware of prior resets? Because from our vantage point now, we are, we're becoming aware right. of at least two, maybe three that we can, might be able to articulate. Huh. And, I, and I'm wondering if that might be the difference in the game changer. That's a really good question. And, and why haven't I thought of that question myself? Yeah, when you when the, the people going through the others, how much did they know about their past in, exactly. in, in, in truth? Because maybe this reset thing is in some way cyclical. It's somehow tied into the system itself. And however it happens is different every time. But you could literally, once you know the, the mechanical mechanism, the, the, mag- the mathematics, you could predict it. That's possible. So if a group, if someone knew that and knew enough mathematics, then, then they would know on, on that level. If you didn't, though, I mean, again, you're, you're at that thing. Like, let's say, let's say one happened in the 1800s. And just for fun, let's say one happened at the end of the Egyptian temple era. Let's say it's a really good example because we, there was so much destruction of, of all the Egyptian and, and uh, right. temples of that pair. So let's say that happened. Would someone in the 1800s who may or may not have much, we don't know how much that group really traveled, what the civilization was really like at that time around the world. How much did they know? I I don't know. I would assume though, that like the the ones like the the medicine people that I knew, the the shamans would have known for sure that they, that that would be in the tribal wisdom. It would be in the in the mythology and in the story so they would know there would have been destructions in the past and certainly tribes like the hopi how they talk about uh we, we that we're in we're going into what the fifth world so there's been four right. worlds before this and they've all the, been the, ho- the hopi been destroyed. So they know at some level yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so you've got all these. So in, in a lot of the tribal cultures, this would be, uh, this would be in their mythology, how much they would, how much everyone would buy in and believe the mythology is hard to say. If we look outside of it into the more westernized cultures, that's hard to say how much they knew or didn't know. But obviously, if you knew something, something big had happened in the past and wiped it, like, okay, e even a, uh, someone reading the Bible would have the, the flood story. Right. So there is a story of a complete destruction and a start over, but that's, you know, it has its own overlay of what that's about so it's kind of there it doesn't matter where you look there's this concept of of destruction and restart is there uh but how much anybody would be thinking but could this be happening in my lifetime and i have to deal with it that's a really good question because it would totally change how you prepare and what you do going into it like you say right absolutely um have you looked into napoleon and his his journey, which by the way takes him to Egypt, and he's very interested in what's going on in Egypt. Have you looked into him at all? I have. I've looked into a couple. Of, I'm first of all, first of all, we have to say, did he exist or not? I'm not sure, but okay. for the sake of our conversation, let's say he did. So the first thing he does after he takes over or, or gets control of the army is, like you say, he's on his way to Egypt, but that's not the first place he stops. Where's the first place he stops? on his on his attack journey robert uh, i would assume maybe turkey somewhere is that right malta malta okay he's he he takes over malta first and for any of us who know our our uh night history we know that at that period of time we we have the also, the dark versus light battles happening between the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitalier. The Knights Hospitalier becoming the Knights of St. John, which became the Knights of Malta. And Malta, basically, the Knights of Malta basically became the rulers of everything once the Templars were destroyed. The Knights of Malta were given the complete control of everything of the, of the Templars uh, had. So I find it extremely curious that the first place he goes is to take over Malta, to, in a sense, take over the control of of the hospitaliers interesting to start with yeah then the next trip is to go to egypt and now if if the story is true he's not just going to egypt to win a battle he's bringing 300 people with him who are experts in the fields of history and mathematics and languages he's going there to uncover the knowledge that's in egypt it's almost like he's you could almost say is he going to rescue it is he try is there a part of him that says you know, it's easy for some to say, oh, he's trying to use black magic or, he's, or, or it, is there something in, in this story of trying to bring back the ancient world in some way? Um, so right at the beginning, when you look into the Napoleon story, there's a whole lot of questions because it's easy to spin it one way, the way the history books want to spin it. I know Stanley Kubrick spent a year digging and researching Napoleon, and this was going to be his biggest movie right after uh, Clockwork Orange. He wanted that's to right. do a Napoleon movie. And then, yeah, something happened and he couldn't do it. And that's why he made the Barry Lyndon because he already had sets made and he already had costumes. So he, but if Stanley Kubrick wanted to spend a huge amount of his life researching Napoleon, there's a reason for it. And there's a hidden message then in that that Kubrick wanted to bring out, which I'm, it's a shame he didn't make it. Yeah, there's stories about people stories who were- about in his in his space and they were they were interviewing him about this and there were just 
file cabinets, file and file and file cabinets, all based on the Napoleonic research. And he, he right. would hire people. He had like a whole army of people that he'd send out and, you know, just acquire as much information and, you know, historical knowledge as they possibly could about Napoleon. That would have been amazing. That would have been an amazing, amazing movie. Because I'm sure he, he must have, whoever Kubrick was, he, he knew stuff at 10 levels higher than everybody else. I'd agree with that. And, I would totally and, agree and, with that. Yeah. Yeah. And if he's, if he's, if he, he means he's found something. Originally, he found something that made him say Napoleon's the focus. And then obviously through the research, he would have found even more. It's curious to know what made him not do it, um, which I'd love to know why he didn't make it. Um, I, I remember them even having um, discussions and even production around uh, the wardrobe for the movie. Like they had, mm. they put together a bunch of pieces. I mean, they were getting very close to doing this. And I love Barry Lyndon. I think it's a great movie, but it's not Napoleon. No, not Napoleon. So the reason I'm bringing this up is, do you think if there is a historical character named Napoleon, do you think that he knew about the reset and that he was attempting to uncover the story of a previous civilization? Mm. That's an interesting topic because when you look at the possible time of when this 1800 reset could have happened, it could have happened between around 1812 and 1817, because those those time frames were really weird stuff. We had we had a world war going on, right? You got one going on in Europe, and then you got one going on in North America. You got this weird Tecumseh's comet that happens in 1814 that nobody can explain. You've got the volcanoes, you've got the earthquakes, you've got the Mississippi changing its course and flowing the other direction. I can't believe people don't talk about that more. How does the Mississippi River change its course? You know course what? And I've known that. And I told I, that just got put on the, 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 the shelves of my memory. But yeah, that's true. The Mississippi changes its course. It's mind blowing. Like, so, so all this is happening in this like four or five year time frame. There's a year without a summer. There's just bizarre stuff. And I'm wondering if whatever really happened took place during that time frame. And then we had 50 years of made up history well through past the uh, Civil War of sort of explaining, trying to come up with an explanation longer term for what happened in that time frame that could be um, palatable to the humans that will be living further on, uh, making uh, so we have all the city fires and things to deal with. So that's all being uh, stretched out and played in. But who knows, the, the whole real time frame might have been that might have been the reset. And then there was like 50 years of cleanup. And then like in the 1870 or something, somebody says, OK, time to flip the switch. We're starting again. So Napoleon might have been right at the, yeah, so who knows if he's literally a part of that. He, I mean, obviously, if that's the reset time, he's a part of that whole reset story. Mm-hmm. So maybe somewhere along the way, he, he was initiated into some secret society in France. I mean, France, as we know, is secret society heaven. And could he have got information that, that, that just urged him to act in some way to say, you know, like, imagine if we had, let's, let's, let's pretend that story you just presented could be true, that he actually was trying to stop the next reset. Imagine what our world would be like now if someone like that showed up today, who had the, who had the capabilities of, of generating huge amounts of people to follow them and say, we're overturning this. 
Right. What an interesting story that would make one Absolutely. way or another. Absolutely. But then there's the, the, <clears throat> the equally weird story where, uh, so, you know, he's supposedly again fighting Cromwell, right? It's Cromwell, some uh, Wellington. Is it Wellington? Wellington. 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 He's fighting Wellington, and somehow the Rothschilds, due to their magic pigeon, find out that uh, Napoleon has lost. But the word on the street is that Wellington lost, and the Rothschilds mm. are taking advantage of this moment and. Basically, everybody is selling their stock and they're buying like crazy and nobody is paying attention to the Rothschilds buying up all the stock that's being sold under a panic sale. And then all of a sudden word gets out well, that Wellington did win and that that the Rothschilds mm -hmm. now are sitting on this massive fortune. And it all has to do with the magic pigeon who somehow manages to make it back to the Roth. What, do you, what is your take on that story? Uh, I take it even another, another interesting level. Cause we're, we're sort of talking about 1815, the battle of Waterloo. Mm -hmm. and, and I can't verify this. This is just information I've had, but as far as the information I've got, nobody can find any bodies and there's supposed to be 50, 60,000 dead on both sides at, at Waterloo. And the, 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 there's been one body supposedly found and it looks, I saw the picture of it. It looks very fake you know, and the rest they say must be in mass graves. That's why they must've been mass graves. And that's, we just haven't found them yet, but, you know, but if you, even if they're in mass graves, you think of all the metal that 1800 soldiers would have worn, they wouldn't have taken all the metal off these, anybody, they're walking around metal detectors, you're going to bump into this. So it also makes you wonder, did it actually happen? And so when you spin back to your story, now you're, you're actually, you're, you're maybe they're, they're spinning the whole story. So even the idea of the carrier pigeon and whatever, it's just, they made up the story. They already knew that how it was going to go. They knew what their end result was going to be. They already had this deception made. So the whole thing could have been a plan just for this, just for the takeover of the finances without even having a battle needed to, to make it happen. Absolutely. I think it's a great point because the whole carrier pigeon thing, it's like, if you think about it for that carrier pigeon, to be able to travel all that distance and not get picked off by a bird of prey or something to happen to it. Well, the odds I think are very, very high, extremely high. The magic pigeon, right? I think you bring up a good point that maybe they manufacture the entire story. It's a complete fiction. And then it comes out that this is what happened. Uh, and they're going to, they're going to manipulate the markets as a result of this. Is it that, is it yeah, that is different? It, is it that different from what we're experiencing today? Yeah, because that part of that part, at least of the Napoleon story, makes no sense. Where he goes through 1812, has the defeat in Russia, comes back, is destroyed, exiled, and then okay, that should be the end of the story. But how does he all of a sudden like resurrect himself, makes it back to France, and starts the whole thing again? But only lasts three months, and then it's you know that it, it's that la if there's if we're dealing with any kind of truth in the story, I always thought that that last 1815 period makes no sense whatsoever nothing about it is any kind of logical explanation and that part almost for sure is probably made up well that gets into all the other wars uh since then and particularly whatever's going on now uh in ukraine yeah. which, which i think is kind of a hybrid war that there's something going on there there's also a lot of theater going on there 
in Ukraine. Yeah, and- that's the thing. We have no idea what's really happening there. So, yeah, something is happening. We know that. We, we're getting, you know, there's enough people making comments about something, but we really don't know what it is. We don't really know why other than uh, we can start speculating on all the things that are going to be spun off from it and are seeing spun off from it. Um, it there, there's another thing that's, that's not over soon. That that's also has a uh, that's also going to spin off. Somewhere well, I, I, I think I think all... I think it's officially over. I think when the Russians had their parade about two weeks ago and they're trotting these guys out of out of Asvatal or the, you know, the Mariupol, the, 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 the place that they were. I think there's it's, there's a major piece that has ended. We just haven't been told. Like, mm-hmm. so I think they're still continuing to run this like war theater, this war script. They just sent another hundred billion dollars worth of weapons over to yeah. Ukraine, on top of close to a hundred billion dollars in cash or, or, you know, zeros and ones that they've sent over there. And they did that. They sent that money, and they really hurried. They they pushed it as fast as they could during this period where how many how many people were walked out of uh, that that uh, steel plant or whatever was it was it. Uh, 2000 people or something like that significant amount yeah, of soldiers, I don't soldiers right yeah so a lot so this thing is yeah. like they're they're running as fast as they can to get as many resources over there as possible while it looks as though the ukrainians are getting their asses kicked now the weird thing about this is that if russia wanted to or i mean russia could just completely paralyze the west if they wanted to they could stop selling their petroleum Right. If the West wanted to, they could blow up the Russian pipelines. I mean, there's a lot of things that if they really wanted to go all in on this thing, they could, but they don't. And we have a war now, whatever this is, that is resetting the financial game, just like what happened with Waterloo and the Magic Pigeon and the Rothschilds and the resetting of the financial game from that point forward. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, from the standpoint of studying history, that's the value of it, the value of, of, of at least looking into the narrative. I mean, there's looking into the narrative and accepting it, and there's looking in the narrative and, and trying to break it down and figure out what's true or what's not true. But at least if you have, if you have knowledge of the narrative as it's laid out, you're going to be able to see a lot of repeating patterns and you're going to be able to see when things are going on in your current reality, like we're going through, you're able to look back in the past because everything will repeat itself one way or another. There, there, there will be repetitions. I find the repetitions for what's going on in Southeast uh, Europe now similar to um, 1939 in Poland. Mm-hmm. We have a similar attack based on similar uh, reasons for the attack. We have not much else happened in, in, in 1939, right? England and, and France really didn't do anything. The only thing that happened is they sunk the Bismarck. Well, what's the big thing that happened there? Sunk the, 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 the Russian battleship, right? So we have all of these little, and then and all the Lend-Lease program from the United States to England, they, they pumped a bunch of money into England. So now we're seeing pumping a bunch. So it, it's really weird that I'm, if I'm thinking like in a history sort of mindset now, and I'm saying, okay, is 1939 replaying itself? The next things we should see uh, on the scale was, okay, we had Russia invade Finland, or sorry, the Soviet Union invaded Finland late in 1939, and then nothing happened until the German invasion of uh, Denmark and Norway. That was next on the on the attack list. So will we, so I, I'm kind of playing this, okay, if it's going to play out again, 
what would what would we see as as the next step? Because again, that's the value of history is you can catch you can catch yeah. things while they're happening and make make viable predictions that no one can understand. How would you know that's going to happen? Well, that's what happened 100 years ago. And like you say, you, you move this back to the time of Napoleon. There's so many there's so many things playing out again. That's the same. I used to hang out with this guy long, long, long time ago, my my 20s. I think it was maybe 19 or 20. And he was um, what I would consider my first spiritual teacher. Very, he was an older guy, way different, and you know, turned me on to some very interesting material. And I, I remember talking with him about Napoleon a little bit, and he okay. thinks he thinks that Napoleon was a, a student of Saint Germain. That that uh, you know, if we're talking about a historical character named Napoleon, you know, and Saint Germain also shows up as a number of different people like uh, supposedly he's this guy count rakazi who is this immortal right, right? lives in right. the central european area but uh but that napoleon was a disciple of saint germain which would make him an alchemist like napoleon would be, would have been an alchemist right so that gets back to your secret society piece around napoleon mm -hmm. and, I, and i've always found it interesting about you know how he how he was demonized and put into the same camp as Hitler, but I and but I feel like they're 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 two very different persona. They're two very different, you know. Again, if we're talking about a historical entity, I think they're very very different in a lot of ways. But but it, it links into the yeah, they, they, thing. you say they're 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 bound together almost. They're, they're in our in modern per person's thinking, they're like bound together as being two of the same things. And like so they're, they're, it's completely different what's going on there. Completely. Yeah at least the way history presents it to us, it's, it, it, it's completely different other than there was a worldwide, uh, a worldwide war that was somehow, you know, involving them as a main character. That's kind of the only thing you can really connect similarly. Well, there's the March on Russia, which Hitler, I believe. And the March on Russia. Okay. You've got that. Yeah. yeah. I believe Hitler throws that whole thing. Like I've, I've looked into the so-called assault on Russia and, there were any number of opportunities where the Germans could have just kept going after they would take a town and Hitler would tell them, no, stand down. And there were a number of Russian, I'm sorry, German commanders who were either removed to their command or actually brought back to Germany. And they were, they were uh, executed because they were questioning central command, which supposedly came from Hitler. So momentum was always being taken away from this blitzkrieg on Russia, um, it's fascinating. It's almost like hmm. the fix was in at that point. Like, okay, we're, we're not going to go do this. Uh, now, in Napoleon's case, if I'm not mistaken, he actually makes it to Maybe. Moscow. And nobody's there, right? They just, like, leave. And so they're kind of rummaging around the city for a while. It's like, okay, well, there's not much here, so we can go back. But they do, they do both go to Egypt, too. The Germans do go to Egypt. And they are looking theoretically for fuel. That's the idea, right? They're going to go to North Africa and they're going to try to get fuel so they can continue their, you know, their, their blitzkrieg and Luftwaffe and this whole thing. And, the, and so we get the Raiders of the Lost Ark version of that, right? They're looking for yeah. really the Ark of the Covenant. They're looking for the esoteric tools to somehow turn the tide of the war. What are your thoughts on that? Well, we know that's we know that's true. They, they, right. There's definitely a focus on esoteric relics, and and uh, I recall they were they brought in a lot of Tibetan monks 
into Berlin that were working on not just uh, astronomy, but astrology and all sorts of things that were. So you've got that that side of it, that, that there's this. Um, it's It's so hard to figure this stuff out, because the more you dig into it, the more questions you get instead of real solid answers. Um, for at least from my research from the standpoint of Southern France, right? You're dealing with um, the guy's name was Otto Ran, and he was, he had been a researcher in the, in the Cathar tradition and he was looking for the Holy Grail and he was focused mostly on Mont Segur. And once the, the, the um, SS felt that he was getting close, they sort of forced him to become an SS officer. So all of a sudden history sort of became like, well, you know, Otto ran work for, for the Nazis. And well, actually he was just working for himself. He kind of got forced into it. And uh, supposedly he was murdered in, in 1939 when, when uh, he wouldn't reveal his sources for things. And he was a homosexual and another say he didn't, he faked his death. He pulled an Elvis and he, he made it on. But the point being was they put a lot of time and effort, for example, into the excavations at Mont Segur to look for the Holy Grail. They, they felt it was something very real and very, very a uh, very serious thing and um, this idea of obtaining an ancient relic that's maybe been there's maybe been more wars fought over this kind of stuff than we think that uh, and and thankfully at least up to this point Egypt has been safe but boy oh boy there's you know I've been to Egypt a lot and even just some of the statues in the in the Egyptian the Cairo Museum, some of the statues have so much power, like literally they have so much power. I thought if I could have ever got one of them brought to my house right. and just placed in my home and had that here every day of my life, I can't even imagine what levels of knowledge and wisdom I would attain from doing nothing else but sitting in front of the statue for eight hours a day and just saying, teach me. Right. That's how powerful they are. And it's like, what would happen if these disappeared and wound up in somebody's hands? We don't want them to, you know, like. Right. Yeah. That reminds me of uh, like the spear of destiny, which the, uh, the Germans mm. held in high regard, almost like the, the Holy grail, which I believe right. is uh, memorialized in one of Wagner's operas about Parsifal, right? So yeah. the, spear, the Spear of Destiny, also known as the Spear of Longinus, which is supposedly the spear that was the coup de grace, right? The, 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 the fatal blow to Christ. Now, I had heard that at some point, it's funny you bring up Elvis. I had heard that Elvis at some point was in possession of the Spear of Destiny, that he had had it. And that also coincided with Elvis's rise to fame. And now I can't confirm this, you know, but it's a, it's a nice little story, but he, the, he winds up having that sort of dispossessed from him. And, you know, does that occur at the same time when, you know, he goes into this hermitage and in Memphis with Graceland, Elvis is a weird, weird character, man. He's a really weird character on the American scene. And, just in terms of his own mythology. He was an esotericist too. Not a lot of people know this about Elvis. No. He was, he was, he was. I was a, yeah, I was, I was, I was just going to bring that up is how much, yeah, how much esoteric knowledge he was in. What, he had some huge experiences where like he, 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 where he felt he was like, 
Jesus had anointed him, I think. And, and, and like, there were all of these, these incredible stories around Elvis that, yeah, almost nobody knows. And he had a library of thousands of books of esoteric knowledge. Yep. And he, he was the byproduct of a twin who had died at birth. That's the other thing about Elvis. And if people, so there's this theory that if you have twins at birth and one of them dies, the spirit of the twin that is that does not make it into the corporeal world bonds with the spirit of the twin that lives. And so there, it's double the power of the individual who survives. And apparently Elvis's twin was a female, was a girl. So with Elvis, you get this interesting, weird, both masculine and feminine thing going on. Like he's a guy's guy. There's stories about him playing football and, and, you know, loving to play football. And he had his boys, the Memphis Mafia. But there's also a really feminine side of Elvis, too. And you get this interesting, almost hermaphroditic kind of, like, a vibration from Elvis. And it, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the death of his twin. Then you've got the, then you've got, it's so interesting how many topics we come to. We, we dig into it. We, we never even, we haven't even um, talked about the topic I threw out to you, which I do kind of want to cover no. a little bit, but go ahead, keep going. Yeah. But uh, then, then there's the story of Jimmy Orion Ellis, right? This guy who right after Elvis dies shows up and he's, and they made him wear a mask. And, and I mean, he sounds exactly like Elvis. He's an orphan who has a weird birth certificate who, whose father's only listed as Vernon, which is Elvis's father. And right. his, his, the maiden name of the real mother he had is the same last name of Elvis's real original maiden uh, name mother. Uh, his, his album when it came out was a picture of, was, was uh, this guy coming out of a coffin and, you've, and it's called, you know, all of these things are so also otherworldly. So Elvis is dead and there's this there's this potential of maybe this was like a brother, an actual brother that he had, not a twin, but a, a second brother that it that it happened in the course, and that these two, there's stories that the two of them were had been working together for a long time. So Elvis could take breaks and he could leave the stage and this other guy would go on and sing for a while. And oh, that's like the prestige. That's like the prestige, the movie The Prestige. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so really so so to me, this Jimmy Orion Ellis is also. An amazing story to and I mean when you listen to him, he sounds it's the same. Let me see. And he even kind of looks the same. And he looked well, he's not so much like Elvis, he looks like Elvis's father. Like him, you put him and Vernon side by side, they look the same. All right, let's let's look at J Jimmy or Ryan Ellis. Let's get a visual here. Oh, this is this is wild. And not many people know about him. And, and I just he, he fascinated me when I looked into the story that uh here we go there he is how weird is this stuff and, and eventually once you've looked through some stuff i'll have you find that album because oh there it is it's uh no that's not that one there's one in the shadow of a king yeah thing with the mask but you'll see this is this is uh, eventually there was his first his first but they they made him wear this mask and and because a book had come out a year just after Elvis died, there's, there's, it's, it's over on your right, it's Reborn by uh, Orion on the right side of the screen. And there's, it's just like a little underneath. Yeah. And he's got this, but look at that. Look at that cover. Look at that magazine. Look at that cover. That is That's wild. His, yeah. So that was his first, that was his first album just after Elvis died. 
Okay. All right. So um, now, now. Yeah. So a book. Had, go ahead. Keep going. Keep go going. Ahead. No, no. no I'm, I'm, I'm going to find a piece of that. video. Go ahead. Yeah. Book could come out. Come, uh, just, if you want, if you out. want a song, I would check up the song called "Look Me Up." Okay. So keep going with your story. That's, I'm going to look up. Look to me, me up. it's it's the greatest song Elvis never recorded. Okay. It's like, it's it's a fantastic song, and this guy sounds just like him. Okay. Jimmy Rhinos. Let's let's cue that up here. This is great. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll wait for the book thing, and you just you pull this up for people, and. All right. Uh, and it's called "Look Me Up," right? Look me up. I'm pretty sure that's the name of the song. Right. Yeah, I can just check it myself just to be sure. But okay, this is from 1982, and Jimmy or Ryan Ellis doing "Look Me Up." Let's get into this. Right. I may. I may get a strike. I, may, I, may I, get I a don't strike, care. But I don't. I don't. Oh, I Who cares? We're breaking. We're breaking ground. We're making history here. You gotta live dangerously sometimes. Or you just play, hold, play hold, like hold, 20 seconds of it. You it might look, get... Hold on. Let me do this. I got to make sure that I have the uh, the sound. Uh, okay, we're good. All right. I don't want to play it and get a text. Sound's not on. All right, here we go. Okay. Here we go. Lagging at my end. I don't know how it is for other people, but. And your sweet, sweet lips are feeling all so cold. You don't gotta look all the time, baby. Orion. There he is. Orion, I love that. <laughs> the symbolism is off the charts, man. It yeah. is off the charts. So is he still around? Is this guy still around? No, he died. He was murdered in 1996 or 97. He was started working at a at like a, a pawn shop, and somebody murdered him in the pawn shop. Wow. wow! The whole thing with Memphis, Memphis, you know, being this location also in Egypt, and just crazy, mm -hmm. crazy symbolism. Have you ever been to Graceland? No, I've always wanted to go. And then you had Sun Records, the name, like the actual name, right. Sun Records. Sun right? Records, yeah. No, I, I, it, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it's a place I had wanted to, to check out. There's just a lot of strange things. And at the same time, Memphis created a very, uh, at the same time, a very uh, changing musical sound and musical scene. So you've got this, you've got the strange symbolism, and then you've got, you know, things like Stax Records, which created this unbelievable sound at the time out of Memphis. So it's, it's also strange, the, 
why does that one place create all of that? It's like you were talking about Laurel Canyon before. How does how does this one place centered on the Tom Mix cabin, which was where Frank Zappa lived, right? Right. Yeah. How does all of these people show up in Laurel Canyon, all with fathers who are in the army or in the Air Force or in the in the or from a wealthy family like like David Crosby from the Van Dyne family? Yeah, they're all there and they yeah. all show up and 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 this all happens sort of almost overnight. Almost again, overnight. it's all just. Yeah. yeah, it just, it just, it doesn't matter what story you look into, you just go, how is this possible? Right. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, yeah, the whole Memphis thing, and even, well, the Muscle Shoals thing is a little bit different because the guys that lived there who were really nobodies, but, you know, became the basis and the foundation of that whole sound coming out of Muscle Shoals. It's a very unusual yeah. setting. Right. Yeah. Or look at Sun, look at Sun Records. Could you imagine if you and I could go back in time to like say 1956 and we could have gone to like a small show at like, you know, um, a theater and we could have seen Elvis, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Roy Orbison, who else might like on the same stage on the yep. same show. Per Carl, per Carl, Carl Perkins was a oh, yeah, Carl Perkins would have been there. Maybe Carl even Perkins, June Carter by the way. would have been there. Carl Perkins was poised to be as big as Elvis and all these other guys, which didn't really happen. Another guy that came through that whole Sun Records world, a lot of people don't know about, is Charlie Rich. And Charlie Rich starts off as being this kind of rockabilly guy. And he becomes right. a much bigger like singer-songwriter in the Nashville scene. Um, he, and he goes on to some acclaim, mostly for writing songs for other people. But he also has his own career. Yeah, I mean, that's just, and if you go and, and Sun Records is still there, they're never going to touch it. It's just this little tiny building. There's nothing really to it. You've got a mixing desk and you've got kind of a reception area and you have a studio and that's pretty much it, right? You have the genesis of this massive cultural typhoon that just comes out of this one little place in Memphis, Tennessee. Yeah. And like you say, linked to the, God Ptah in Egypt. Right. And obviously not by accident. Yeah. Not by accident. Wow. These are some really, really interesting um, highways and byways of the realm that we live in. And so when we do look at things like this historically, it's, it's fascinating, right? To look at it from this perspective and the mythology and the kind of the, 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 the hyper um, meaning the hyper mythology of it all to me i i think it's just you know really interesting interesting stuff well i'm i'm we were talking about you know being thankful for how things have gone in our lives and, and like for example i'm really thankful that i have people like you who are willing who want me to come on and, and talk because you know i spent 20 years researching this stuff talking to like one or two people at a coffee shop over <laughs> a coffee. And that's all I ever had a chance right. to talk to about because no one was interested. And all of a sudden now I have a, I feel like I have a place to share all of this time and all this work I put in with you and, and a whole lot of other people. So first of all, it's just, I, I'm grateful to be able to do this kind of stuff and have these conversations. And, and again, maybe it's a reminder that we, we put in time sometimes in our lives into various areas and it seems like it's not going anywhere, but we just haven't given it enough time yet. We just have to wait till the right fruiting moment. And that's when all of the, the, the effort we put in will reveal itself. Uh, Cause that's certainly how it feels with me. I put in so much time and effort and, and it seemed like, it seemed like it was, it was pointless. And now it has 
it's been having great value and and uh, I'm just passing that out for others in the same position. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting and important uh, piece that you're bringing to the discussion. You know, I have my own experience with it. When I was in college, I had a major disruption in my major. And I started off studying TV and radio broadcasting because mm. that's what I wanted to do. And I was actually really good at it uh, from the production standpoint and uh, from the writing standpoint and somewhat from the talent standpoint. And then I had a, I had a real falling out with that world. And I did almost like this 180 and I started to study English literature, which is really in many ways a useless major. Uh, although you learn how to do certain things and looking back on that time, it was really where I got my training. It's where I cut my teeth on trying to understand material in a, in a different kind of way for myself. And mm. I, I, I remember, uh, there was a there was a short story uh, written by was it Eudora Welty might have been Eudora Welty and it was a short story about uh, this musician called Powerhouse and he was uh, this uh, jazz musician he was he was uh, a black jazz musician very short story and I remember reading that story and understanding that story from an archetypal level like what he okay. was and what he was doing and crossing the river to the other side of town and what that meant. And, and I, and I wrote my, uh, you know, my, 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 my breakdown of that from that perspective. And then I remember the, this is in college, the, the teacher professor actually reading that to the rest of the class and feeling like, okay, I, I touched into something here. I'd found this more archetypal, mythological, universal language of how I could look at the story. Right. And then moving that forward, I understand now from this perspective that that was the training that I was getting. So to your point, and maybe I've kind of gone about this in a roundabout way, if you're listening to this, you're listening to what Howdy is sharing here, that your experiences and what you've gone through, they they are not for naught. They, they These things might be part of your present or your future self that your you can self that you bring can. into your life. And you don't even know it at that time. Like when you were going through and studying all these things, you were interested in them, but did you know at some point that you'd become an internet sensation? You probably didn't know that. Well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, when I first started, cause I, I, I started studying this coming out of depression, right? I, I was, I was at the point of wanting to kill myself in uh, 1997. I just, my, my life had gone spiraled so badly away in so many areas. And it was uh, the video on, on the pyramids that came on one night. It was actually right around my birthday. And I, I instantly knew that's what I'm supposed to do. But within a year of starting that study, I started getting almost like a narcissistic overlay of like, maybe I'm supposed to be an Egyptian priest and I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to build a temple. And I'm supposed to bring this system back to the world. And so I had that in mind for a long time. And of course that didn't happen. And when it didn't happen, I started thinking maybe, maybe I was wrong about everything. I was wrong about that. So maybe I was wrong about the whole study and everything that I was going through as well. And I just put it down for a long ways and now I do see that all of that has come around in a completely different format, a completely different way. And I'm completely different in what I share about those, those, that period of time when I was obsessively uh, practicing and obsessively testing reality in myself. Um, 
so I am sharing something really useful. I, I feel I am sharing something from the ancient world, but now in a much more balanced, harmonious way than the way my mind at the time tried to force it. Right, right. That's, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting when we latch on to things from the personality level or the ego level. And that's not to say that, who knows, maybe you weren't that individual at a certain point in time, you know, or maybe your spirit had a harmonic relationship to that, to that entity or that story, you know, maybe part of a group soul or something. We, we don't, we don't really completely understand the nature of reality. Um, so, but we do have these moments where it's like, okay, I'm going to latch onto this and this is what I am. And this is what I'm supposed to do. I thought for a while that I was the reincarnation of Nostradamus, right? I mean, I lived for that with about a year of my life. And I'm like, well, that's a bunch of, you know, that's a bunch of hooey because there's a, probably about a thousand other people that believe the same thing. Um, and, we, you know, and then we move through these things, right? And we, and we refine whatever it is that we experience, and then, you know, find, find, hopefully find a relatively inclusive way to share the information. Yeah, I, I think, well, of course, a lot of people don't make it through that, right? They, they stay in that their whole time. Even people who have some type of what can truly be called a type of awakening, they, they really do see through reality or see through something truthful, but they get that what's called Zen, Zen sickness or, or, you know, and, and they just get caught in it and they never get themselves out. So they can talk a really good game, but if you ever went there and spent time with them and, and, and got stuck with them, they're going to drag you in a really deep pit. And so it's, it's such a, it's such a challenge because, when you talk about someone who's seeking knowledge, seeking wisdom, or in, mostly people are trying to seek, how do I, I'm in pain, how can I get out of pain, right? I'm suffering, how do I get out of suffering? And as soon as they find someone who promises, I can get you out of suffering, people are in a dangerous place and they'll turn over almost anything if they believe the person will do it. And there's, there's, it's really easy to hook people in on so many levels. And so it's also a challenge that if you are a true seeker, to really take your time before you jump two feet in anywhere to say, how do I know I can trust that the person I'm putting my faith in really, really knows something and really has my best interest at heart. It's better to go slow than to just jump in and wind up all of a sudden a year later and go, what have I done? You know, right. granted the, what have you done can be part of your story, but if you can avoid it, I'd recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, you can crash and burn and you'll learn something, but maybe you could just drove, drive right past that wreck, right? Just drive right past that flaming wreckage on the side of the road. And you don't have to. Yeah, I gave one. There was a friend of mine who uh, got, who got uh, hooked up with a guru, you know, really early on. And, and this, this, this person was, you know, walked on water to, the, to this, my friend. And I finally said, you know what? If you really want to keep studying with this person, this is my advice. Go find, you know where they live, right? Go ask if you can go live at their house for a week. Go watch what happens when their neighbor spills some trash on their yard or their sister that they don't like calls or like, you know, anybody can look good sitting in a chair for an hour when people are paying them a whole lot of money. Go see them at their house when they're living normally in day-to-day -day life. If you see the same kind of qualities that you saw on stage in their life, then I'd say, then follow that person. You, you found something, but you need to see them in their full capacity of their day-to-day -day existence you might be shocked to see how they are when they're not in front of you on that stage. And yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. 
as you well know, because you because you had a teacher that like you were talking about, and you saw them quite often. You saw them all of their life, the good parts, the bad parts. You got you got the totality of who they were, so you knew what you were dealing with. Yeah, right? I mean, I, he was a I would say uh, an unofficial teacher, but he didn't really he wasn't really uh, forthright with his story but I was able to piece some of it together. And this is a man who had fallen, right? He had really fallen in his life. He had been a, a commercial pilot for United Airlines and had a, had a breakdown, which is what probably led to his breakthrough. And instead of firing him, uh, United Airlines said, okay, you can clean the planes now. You're not, you're not fit enough or mentally well enough to fly the plane. We can't fire you, but we'll, we'll allow you to, to clean the plane. Now, in many cases, most pilots would say, fuck that, you know, I'll go do something else. But he was like, I'll clean the plane. And I'm like, well, that says something. It says something that you've humbled yourself enough to just, you know, clean the planes that you used to fly. That's it. I think it's a very unusual, not many people could do that. And no. based on that, I was able to listen to him a lot more. And um, yeah, because obviously not only did he have the experience, he obviously got humility from the experience and was a change because that's people ask me what's because I, I don't like using the term awakening very much because it's thrown out so so often it means a thousand different things and I, I classify usually what most people label that word to be that's just a realization they've seen something that they haven't really seen before it's something's clear and that's great maybe they had a mystical experience that's also great but awakening true awakening is to see through who and what you thought you were that, bef that, that it's literally a dividing line that before that moment, I thought I was X living in this kind of world and this kind of reality. And now I know at least I'm not any of that. All of that was wrong. And now I'm a completely, so if there hasn't been a change, a change of identity that you, you, you are now identifying with as something completely different, it wasn't awakening. It was something else because awakening will should blow out the idea that, you know, I'm Howdy McCoskey living on planet Earth in 2022. That blows that completely out of the water. So to me, if that's how, and if that happens to someone, they're ready to be, uh, they're ready to be completely different. They're ready to live a completely different life and a very simple life because there's, there's not as much they have to chase anymore. That, that, that got burned out of them. Yeah, I, I t agree totally, 100%. Um, um, can we can we talk about the subject that I threw out to you? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? If you want, I mean, I'm not. Well, uh, I, I saw what you wrote. I, I'm yeah. not. I'm not exactly sure exactly what you're talking about, okay. what you wrote about. But if you want to bring it up, I can see if I can add some Be because it does. Information to it, that. it it does. I think tap into this idea of glomming on to something, and 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 glomming onto it in a way where we have the personality attached to it, there's ego identification. Um, and then there's also this idea of like secret knowledge, right? Because when people do have that red pill moment or that awakening moment, maybe not even the awakening, but the epiphany moment, and all of a sudden begin to see things differently. One of the things that it does create is a sense that I know something that you don't. And mm -hmm. there, there, there can be a lot of real ego traps in that area. And, the, so the, the topic here has to do with Tartaria and what's been going on in the Tartaria world, some of which you may not even know about, but I'll just throw it out there. 
Uh, we okay. had yeah. recently uh, Martin uh, from his world. You know Martin Leitka? You know Flat Earth British? Yeah. Right. Flat Earth British, yeah. So Martin had a big tour of uh, England and Wales, and they were going to look at these various sites that had okay. so-called hidden history or Tartarian buildings. And that was like actually physically thing. went to these places. Like he went physically went there, a group of people signed up. And then after that, uh, Martin had a, a conference, a physical conference where people got together and presented material. And then out of that experience, there were people who were associated with his tour who claimed that Martin ripped them off. This is a claim and that they received no money from their participation in the tour and in the conference. So Martin had to do kind of this major retreat. Literally he left, he left, I think he lives in Wales. He left Wales and I think he went to um, Yugoslavia, Czech Republic, that area. I think he's in that area. And he did this video where he was addressing what had happened. And there, in, so we live in a weird telephone world where, so, you know, somebody said that, uh, you know, that a, a woman on the tour who was a speaker accused Martin of uh, violating her against her will. Right. Which is not true, by the way, but it came out mm-hmm. and, and that was one of these things that was sort of, you know, this rampant rumor where really the, 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 the so-called truth was the fact that this woman didn't get paid. And so there were a lot of people that were accusing Martin of scamming them with this tour. And so Martin had to come out and say, look, I didn't make any money either. I, there, I hired a company to run the tour and run the conference. And then after they took all of their fees, nobody got anything, right? So, but this caused a major mm. disruption and a major like ripple in the whole Tartarian world that somebody who had had put out a lot of work, a lot of effort, a lot of material, now all of a sudden was being highly discredited due to their whatever, whatever kind of organizational and administrative snafus, intentional or unintentional, happened with their tour. So Martin now is kind of in exile. That's what's happened to him. Oh. All right, so that's one. Then oh. there was a series of highly produced, well-produced videos, about five of them that were uh, put out by a guy by the name of, I think it's E. Warrenon or something like that. And I remember seeing these videos thinking, wow, these are really high-grade videos that are getting into the things that you and I have talked about, a number of other people have talked about, you know, done at an extremely high level, great production value, great editing. And then I think after about five videos, he comes out and says, well, I was in a bookshop in England and I I saw that uh, how these things were made. So everything I've completely said about all this is wrong. Right. So there was this setup. It seems like it might've been a setup where people have been drawn in to some of the most highly visible and highly viewed videos around Tartaria. And then you have the person who did those videos just rebut everything. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. So there's right. that then, and this is something apparently that's been ongoing. 
but there's this guy Fendap. Uh, the he's this researcher does a lot of live streams, and uh, he talks a lot about the mud flood and the reset. But he's also very very Christian. He's very biblical, and that he'll call out John Levi from time to time, and say, "Well, you know, John Levi is great, but he's you know he's not a Christian." And he's not following Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So therefore, you can't take what he says with any real grain of salt because he's the prince of lies. We'll get into what John is talking about. So we're seeing this strange kind of ripple effect begin to happen mm. in this world. And, and even to mm. some extent, um, the whole series of books that have been created by uh, David. What's his name? David, David Ewing. I think it's David Ewing, who has about, I don't know, 50 books on Tartaria on, on Amazon oh, that you can get. Right. And his sort of telling of the tale of Tartaria also begins to come at this from a different perspective. Like, like it's not the panacea of the golden age that you're thinking about, that a lot of these, a lot of these cathedrals are built on the literally the bones and the skulls of humans um, and, and that the, the golden age isn't so much of a golden age. It's, it's probably more, much more of a dark age. So this is all coming out now around the whole Tartaria, the evolution of Tartaria, mm. the myth of Tartaria. And I think we're about six years into this around 2016, these things really start to come up. So we're we, 2023, we're hitting the Saturn cycle of Tartaria. And hmm. so the test of what you and I are talking about, a lot of what other people are, are have been uncovering, the test is is coming. Because when we hit that seven-year cycle, some of which some of the things we're talking about may be debunked, or we may have a complete split and fissure of this world. But whatever is real will live on after this seven-year cycle. So whatever happens after 2023, I feel like we'll have the the nugget. Or the, the the you know you know the bones literally or figuratively of what's going to be the thing that we can build on from this point in time. So I the reason I brought it up is number oh. one, I wanted to know what you thought what you had heard about this, and number two, what your thoughts are around it, even though you may not know the totality of what I just shared with with you about. Yeah, to be honest, I knew none of it because I've kind of I kind of kept myself out of the world a little bit. Uh and and began, you know, I focused on, I've been focusing on back on my spiritual stuff. I wrote the, I wrote the, the book on the expositions. Uh, I thought it was useful, but once I saw the sort of the, the layers, it was going with mud flood, Tartaria, uh, uh, that there, there was a lot of almost like um, boxes being placed already on the past that like certain things, the past is a certain way and you have to agree with it in order to be in our group, but that our group thinks this are as opposed to, like I, I like to use the word if I use if I ever use mud flood, I just mean it as some sort of catastrophe that happens in the past. Could be any catastrophe. Uh, Tartaria is just a word that describes potentially a time a time of the of right. of um, in our past, but not any specific regions, not any specific. It just again, it's just like a marker word for me. Exactly. So exactly. For me, I, I kind of just stayed out of it, and I stayed out of it. I guess partially because I saw what happened to the flat Earth movement because I looked into that a little bit. 
but that was the zeitgeist before this one. That's right. And and same thing as as that was kind of coming to an end. That's when this uh, Tartaria thing started. Like you say, around 2016. And I remember as the flat Earth was going, it was it was it was, it was just like blowing up. It had become like religious fervor. If you were on this side uh, and you decide you changed your mind, you were you know it's it was like converting from Christianity to to Judaism or something. It was it was that kind of nastiness that was that was involved in that whole scenario and i guess just seeing that from the back side of it i kind of when i wrote the book i just the book was i needed to write the book and i really didn't know why i needed to write it but i just needed to get that information out there about the fair specifically and even though i mentioned some of this other stuff just as an overview i didn't want to get into any of it and i didn't want to dig into it too deeply so i tried my best to stay on the outside of it and just always kind of um view it because I kind of felt this could happen. I kind of felt something like this down the road. And of course we've got, the more that the people in charge are seeing that more truth about the past is coming up, they're getting a bit nervous too, because you know, they've, they've holding on and hiding the past has been really important. So it's no surprise that we're seeing things like the Keanu Reeves, Keanu Reeves TV show coming out about the Chicago world's fair or, you know, all of this stuff that's starting to all of a sudden burst out now to try to, like you say, uh, downplay the information or make people think the information is faulty or the people presenting the information, there's something wrong with them. So you can't trust them. So yeah, I, I don't doubt we're hitting the next block in phase that the zeitgeist is kind of ending. Although, there's a couple of channels. I, I just, once in a while, I just bump around to see what's on the internet. There are some channels now. I'm not going to say what they are. They're presenting this kind of information. Nice. The videos are nice. They have a nice look to them, um, but very simplistic, no depth. They're getting 150,000 views. So, I mean, it's also, there's, a, there's an unbelievable interest in the material still, but um, as soon as you want to start going into depth and try to, you know, here, here's, here's one of the problems I had with this, and then I'll shut up and let you comment. Um, one of the problems I had in this area was people are presenting their opinion and belief as if it's the truth, mm -hmm. as if they know the answer and you have to agree with them as opposed to, but we don't know the answer. And in fact, we probably never will know the answer. What we do, what we can do is break down the narrative and show that the narrative we've been presented is wrong. Beyond that, you know, everything I've said about what I think could be, I, I know it's just a theory. It's just a, it's just a belief. And tomorrow it could be completely changed. But a lot of people have been really rooted in their, in their, in what they believe. And so it's been very hard to communicate sometimes and, and have conversation because as soon as you, as soon as they say, well, he thinks the opposite of I do. It, it ends. And the only way this would ever be uncovered is everybody realizing they're studying one piece of, they're getting one piece of the jigsaw puzzle and it's just a piece and be proud of the piece, be proud of the work you put in. But if you're not going to share it with a hundred other people doing similar work, we'll never see the full puzzle. And that's where we've got stuck. Everybody is fighting over their jigsaw puzzle piece rather than saying, here's my piece, please go take it to the next level. I mean, if somebody could use my book and figure out what happened at the world's fairs and, uh, and get all the accolades and be, I'd be great. Somebody got the answer because it wasn't me, but great. Fantastic. But I think if that's, unless that happens, we're going to see the thing just churn in the mud longer and longer and longer. And it's going to, it's not going to go too far actually. 
you know, what strikes me about this whole dynamic is that people have, I think, an innate desire to be, to be the first one there or to get to the top of the mountain or to have yes. the, the, the biggest headline in print, right? And I think that's, in a lot of ways, a, a beautiful condition. It's a beautiful piece of the human condition. Like we, there's a part of us that is inherent with that. And I hope we, we never lose it. The downside of that is that there's also this other piece that goes along with ownership and saying, well, this is my thing. And, you know, and I got here and, and the identification with that is the thing that, that kills it. So it's this very interesting dynamic in that we have this desire you know, to, to, to be this pioneering spirit and to, and to find the thing and to get there and to have the aha moment and, you know, be like the kid in school who solves the answer to the teacher's question, right? Like I got it. And then the downside of that or the shadow side of that is, well, none of you other fuckers got it. Right. So this, I think this is the crux of the human condition in a lot of ways. Yeah. And, and it's beautiful and inspiring and then the ugly part of it sets in. And if we can somehow like solve that equation, I think it could go a long ways towards all of us living together and understanding, hey, you're important. I'm important. What you think is important, what I think is important. But guess what? My thing may not be as important as yours at any given moment. Yeah. Uh, I, can, I can share, you know, something from my own life here, which after I'd had my experience in 2005, and I mean, and I really did, it was an awakening, and I really did experience a completely different reality and understanding and, and realm. But the problem was, the egoic self wasn't destroyed like I thought it was. I thought it was gone. So I thought I was seeing everything clearly and perfectly. And I wasn't. And it didn't take long for even though I was acting out of really good intentions, as long as you've got an egoic structure running in place, it's going to distort everything you try to do. And so really that that's that's more of the battle than anything else is removing removing these egoic parasitic structures from our minds because as soon as you start operating without it, um, you don't you don't run into many of these things. You don't you, you know you you. you a lot of it just ceases, or at the very least, you stop chasing. You stop trying to be the best anymore. You're just, you're happy to just get some stuff and do some things that you feel you have to do. And, but yeah, this need to, to be constantly going up the ladder, being, which like you say, that drives people to get stuff done. It drives people to, or nobody would, would in this case, do the kind of research they've done. People have done fantastic research. Um, but then it's a, okay, can you step back and, and share it? And because it's, it's important stuff that what's come out in the last six years has been, has been, it's it's changed the world. It actually has the, the, the the knowledge of this stuff coming out historically has, has in some way changed the world. Like when I, when a guy can put out a video and get 150,000 people watching about the history of some buildings in, in some part of the United States, that's telling you what a change that wouldn't, couldn't happen 20 years ago nobody would have been interested. So we've had this great revival or it's great. The question is where to take it, where to really take it. And again, like I said, given, given we're on the verge of it's almost over, 
like like game this game is almost this game is almost going to stop being played pretty soon yeah. if people don't recognize how quick this is moving and get out of get their head out of denial none of this is going to matter that you you've located more another post office in another city that has a dome on the on the top so what uh when when you, all your freedom's gone so it's also this sense instead of okay if you're going to research can we research what's extreme what's actually valuable what's needed now and of course that'll mean you'll have to get rid of your egoic structures because you've got to say what do others need not what do i need right. and then it's I'm going to work on myself now because I really need to recognize that if anything's going to improve, I've got to improve first and I've got to make the changes within that I need to make. Uh, so we'll see if that's going to happen and not just, I mean, all over in, in every community to see if enough people will realize the, 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 the hopes that they've been sitting on for a long time and the denial they've been in if not enough people recognize that it, it's, it's not going to be pretty in the next few months when, when the next wave sort of hits everybody and they're not prepared for it. Um, but yeah, I didn't know any of this stuff. Like I, said, I knew none of it. And um, so I, 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 yeah, I feel, I, and I feel for the people who are the ones who are watching and, and researching and trying to understand something and, and they're, they're, they're interested in, where do you go to get this information? Where do you go to, to, to get the, the research that you need? Where, you know, so I feel for them as, as always, just like the spirit to me in the last two years, the biggest disappointment for humanity has been the spiritual community. The very ones that people are supposed to lean on for truth and guidance and wisdom have all kind of just disappeared. They've literally just gone back in their cave and pretended nothing's been happening in the last years at the very time people needed this this voice the voice w wasn't there do you have any examples and, of that uh, do you have any examples of that yeah i don't want to say their names uh, openly but there's let's just say there's a lot of people let's say a lot there's a number of people whose books i read or i thought had really valuable things to say and yet when all this came they had nothing to say about the obvious lie that's in front of our face. I think so I know who one of them if is. If you're talking about, yeah, if you if you can't if you can't see this lie in front of your face, but yet you're talking about truth, uh, as far as I'm concerned, everything you've ever said now is up for is up for question. If you can't see this, right. and so a, a lot of people that I held a lot of faith in or faith that I, I held quite highly, they've dropped considerably, and there's only a few that are left. So I have less attachment to calling people out uh, than you do, but I've, I've felt for a long time that Graham Hancock has been incredibly disappointing in this area because he's somebody who has put himself out as someone who can, you know, be this cosmologist and range, you know, be a free range researcher and go into things like the Neanderthals and the Cro-Magnons and ayahuasca and DMT and, and, uh, uh, the uh, the comet story and the Grand Canyon and all these things, yet you never hear anything about this other world that we're talking about coming out of the mouth of Grand Hancock. So for me, when I when I see that and I put you know one and one together, the 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 equation that comes out of my head is gatekeeper, like he's a gatekeeper, and and he's there to give us 
a certain amount of knowledge and maybe it's intentional or maybe it's unintentional. Maybe he can't handle the truth. I don't know what it is, but this is somebody who's really at the, you know, at, at the, you know, close to the top of the pyramid and shows up on Joe Rogan and has a lot of influence. I've had a number of people come on here and, uh, you know, saying about the virtues of Graham Hancock. And I'm like, okay, well, where is he on, on, on this other stuff? He's, he's a, he's a, a W O L. So, he, he just comes to the top of my head and I'm sure there's others, but yeah, they they are Lots. absent. They are absent. And, and, or it's just, I mean, you know, they've just, they can't fully understand. Like I've read his books, for example, I read them. They were, they were interesting to me when I read them, very valuable. But if you have not experienced real evil in your own life, if you haven't had to see darkness you know it, if it's just been something you've read in a book then you can't look at the world and what's going on and recognize what it is for what it is right. because you don't have you don't have so so I, I, I well i don't want to necessarily pound them all over the head assuming that they are just humans like you and me doing their best my guess is they can't fathom what we're really under because they have nothing in their experience that tells them the world can be this dark and this controlling and this nasty that they, 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 so they're holding on to, they're holding on to this vision of the world that they have believed it is or hoped it is. And they can't, they can't reconcile sort of the full Gnostic viewpoint of it, the dark and the light that the, 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 the total duality that exists here, the, from the good to Rex Monday, right? They, they can't see Rex Monday. So because they can't see it or even recognize its existence, there's no, they'll, they'll, they'll find a way to filter that out, to block that off, to wall it off. And I think that's a really good thing we see, not just with them, but so many people on the street, right? They've built that wall up because they know if they let the wall down and they let the possibility in that they're being lied to on so many levels, then they've got to start saying, well, what else have I been lied to about? You know, is science true? Is religion true? Is this true? Is the government system true? What, what should I trust my mom and dad? You know, they know that certain things are like a, if one goes, the rest might go. And so a lot of, a lot of what we're seeing, I think in the world for the last years from everybody who's, who's it, it's a wall to hold off the, I need to keep the foundations of what I believe because if, if they start to fall, well, what do I have left? Right. Well, now you're getting into the, the realm of spiritual gatekeepers. And I was uh, diving into this world back in 2010, 2011, mm. and looking around. And it, it was really, uh, you know, promulgated by the housing crisis and, uh, and just the massive amount of corruption and greed that was being traded in, in the uh, human marketplace. And when that was going on, I was looking around. I'm like, okay, well, what is, um, what is Deepak Chopra saying about this? Nothing. What is, uh, what is um, Oprah Winfrey saying about this? Nothing. What is Tony Robbins saying about this? Nothing. So a lot of these people became our Marianne Williamson, even back then, nothing. She, she actually said a few interesting things when she was running for president. Uh, but I began to look at these spiritual gatekeepers. I'm like, it, it, to your point, if they can't go there and understand this to the degree that you're talking about, then all they're doing is buttressing themselves 
against what's taking place in our realm so that yeah. they can hold on to their share of the marketplace. And that's it. It's, it's, you know, once you build an organization and once you start making big money off this stuff, you have to keep people happy. And right. a, a message of truth, if you're going to start talking truth, that's all levels now. A lot, of, a lot of people will not want to hear it, and they're not going to give you money and be a part of your organization. It's partially why Richard Rose is one of the few people I still hold up as a person who lived their life through truth completely. And even though he, there was an organization got founded, he, more people left it than ever wanted to join up because he would never bend his message. You know, he's the only one I've ever heard talk about not just absolute truth and knowledge and God, but he's talking about parasitic beings and demons and, and mind control and hypnosis. I mean, he's talking about every subject possible. Yet his very organization, he's, he's been dead now 15 years. A lot of that's been filtering away. Mm -hmm. right. And it's been a wonderful thing to show how, how long it doesn't take for for a religion to form one awake guy who re or girl who really knows something and one generation after they're dead it's still going on but in really minute form really watered down form a whole lot of stuff and by two generations it's not the same thing anymore so it's been it's also been this this check to see how quickly it can go but boy is it is it a hard thing to, this is one of the hard things on the spiritual path that I think some people maybe have a tough time dealing with. You've had somebody on a pedestal for a while when you were when you were starting. Somebody was really helpful. A book was really helpful to you. You went and saw some seminars from somebody. But then the time came and you're seeing stuff like you're seeing. But wait a minute. What about this? What about this? What about, and you realize you've passed your teacher mm -hmm. or you've passed the person you're on the pedestal and you're actually, you're now ahead of them. Mm -hmm. And to 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 recognize this not in a not in a self in a self important way, but in just an honesty way, that okay, I have to put that down, and I've got to go further. I've got to go find somebody who's farther ahead than that person, and thank them for where they were. But I've got to I've got to move ahead. I can't spend my time turning back and battling them and saying why are why are you so stupid? It's instead as a chance to say, okay, then. Who's ahead? Who's ahead of the game now, and who can I go learn from, uh, and redouble your efforts? Because it's still all about you and your journey. It's your personal journey, and you don't want to get stuck in the mud anywhere, battling anything that you don't have to. You know, you battle what you battle, and if you don't have to, walk around it. You know, the best wall—the best wall to get over—is the one you can walk around and just ignore and leave standing, and and that's a big part of it. Is Getting to know, be honest with ourselves, honest where we are, so that we know who our really next teacher is. And um, the ones who move on the path are the ones who are the, mo who are the most honest with themselves. Mm, I like that. It's probably a good place to end the conversation here. That's a really uh, poignant uh, point of arrival. Thanks for that. I appreciate that. Hey, thank you. It's been uh, always an interesting conversation. And we had, for all of you to know, we had basically no plan. No plan. Nope. I, rare, I, rare, I rarely have a plan. By the way, I have a yeah. brief outline of a plan, and then we we fill in the details as we go along. Um, I one of these days, and I've been flirting with this idea of actually having a physical conference to talk about some of these ideas, like in the flesh, so people can actually you know meet each other, connect, 
And uh, if I ever have the power and the capital to bring you over, I will do that in a heartbeat. I will fly you over here and get you into a physical space so that we could actually do something in 3D. I think it'd be really cool. You know, you uh, there's a number of people like yourself that, oh, I would love to meet and have some time together and just go out in the forest together, talk a bit, be out in, be out in, in, in the world somewhere and just, or even better yet, you and I having an experience at an ancient site. Well, oh, that's kind of that's that's kind of in the uh, the back burner here. That so that would be you know whether it's Teotihuacan in Mexico or walk you through Abu Sir in Egypt, but it's one of those things that, for example, to individually you get stuff, but when you're there with somebody else who can tune in like you, and now you're both of you are tuning in and you can share what you're getting you start to really get some powerful answers sometimes. And I mean, this would all be great if, if we can, if we can maneuver, so if the world allows us to maneuver, uh, you know, I'll be there. But like we said at the beginning, everybody better buckle If hockey terms, you better buckle up your helmet because um, it's gonna, the game is changing and it's uh, not going to be dump and chase anymore. It's going to get physical and you better get ready. The Steve, the Steve Weisermans are Steve Weisermans are coming into the game now. Yeah. That guy was big and physical. He was big and physical and fast. And No, he wasn't. No, no, no. You, I mean, you might be thinking of someone else. He was the, he was a, a number 19 center for the Red Wings. Really quick, really good with his hand, really good with his stick. And his hands. I am thinking about somebody else. Who was the enforcer? You might be thinking of Bob, maybe Bob Probert. Bob Probert, that's who I'm thinking about. Bob Probert. Yeah, I played a game against him, and I was smart enough when junior to just leave him alone. <laughs> just, the Bob, Bob Proberts you know, are, are are taking the ice now. Yeah, I you know I'm I was a physical player when I played, but I was smart enough to know if Bob Probert wants the puck, I think I'm a 16 year old rookie. I'm just gonna. I'm going to let him have it. Right. He was a scary dude even then. Yeah. Wow. That's exactly what I was thinking of. Thanks for the clarification. All right, Howdy. I'm going to take you, let you go back to the land of the midnight sun there. And uh, thank you, my friend. Yeah. Thanks for coming on a short notice. I'm going to send you an email and maybe I'll throw some ideas out to you and and, uh, maybe we could put something together. That'd be kind of cool. If I could just say one thing before we go, that's okay. Yeah, sure. Next, because what we're talking about on May 29th, next Sunday, one of the people that I still really trust in this world, Bart Marshall, him and I are putting on a one day intensive, we're calling it Battlefield 2022, how to find absolute truth in a world gone mad. And if you pop over to my, uh, my, uh, my YouTube channel, there's a, there's a small video on it. If you're really interested, we'd love to have you. We're going to be as honest as we can um, in this one day. And uh, he's a, if nothing else, go look into Bart. He's a he's a really interesting guy, very honest, and and there's no area he's not going to talk about. All right, so we'll make sure we have some links for that in the show notes, and uh, okay, go hang out and get some get some juice with Howdy and Bart. All right, take good care, and we'll see you somewhere down the line. Yep. Thanks, Robert. Thanks, Bye-bye. Howdy. Bye. All right. That was Howdy McCoskey. Always a great conversation with him. Wow. I had no idea we we're going to go into Jimmy or Ryan Ellis. That was really cool. And thanks again to uh, Dr. Joan and enlightening us about 
the dangers of mercury and the toxicity that can happen inside of your teeth, your mouth, and why it's important to have it removed and a very timely conversation to take place on a mercury retrograde. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for being here. We'll be back on Sunday night over on Sunday Night Astro Live, which is really this channel. It's the very same channel. So if you like this conversation and you enjoy astrology, you'll be able to dive in on Sunday night. We hang out here from 8 o'clock till about 10, 30, 11 o'clock at night, Central Standard Time. So for you West Coasters, it's 6 p.m. On the East Coast, it's 9 p.m. And uh, we cover all kinds of different topics that are related to astrology. And uh, we'll see where we go this week. Chataria, thank you for being here as always. And uh, you are the uh, you you are the pulse. You are the pulse for this experience. And uh, I'm just here checking it. Use your head in order to discern what's real. Your heart to say what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Take good care. Bye for now. Have yourself.